We're in the book of Malachi. Why don't you go ahead and make your way there. Malachi chapter 3. Important message to this morning. Uh, really want to get into this together with you. Title of my message this morning, Is it vain to serve the Lord? And before we read our text, I just want to preface our time this morning by telling you I believe this addresses an issue an attitude and a question that many Christians are asking themselves today. Specifically, young men and women, late teens, early 20s, who have grown up in a Christian home. Today's text, I believe, addresses an issue that they may be wrestling with this morning because I've discovered that many are. And they are asking the question, is it worth continuing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it worth continuing being a believer in Jesus Christ? They're asking that question today, and I'm going to expound on that in just a moment. We find ourselves in chapter 3, verse 13 of the book of Malachi, as we now climax the problem of the children of Israel that was originally addressed in the overall title of our series called Indifference. For the children of Israel had grown indifferent to God. They did so because they were going through very difficult times there in Israel. And as a result, they started growing indifferent towards God, first believing that he no longer loved them, he no longer cared for them, that he has discarded them, that he was uh, lax concerning the uh, promises in which he has made to them, as they were released from Babylonian under Cyrus, and they regathered into their land. They came back to absolute rubble. And the nation of Israel looked at a rebuilding project that seemed almost hopeless altogether. But then God, in his wisdom, by his might, by his spirit, brought the nation of Israel back together again. He sent Nehemiah to build the wall. He wrote through Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah to encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua to rebuild the temple. He encouraged others to fortify the city and bring it back to a place of, that could be habited once again. But after the building was done and completed, the nation of Israel still experienced difficulties and problems agriculturally. They had tense relationships with their neighbors around them. Wealth and prosperity became the goal of the individual rather than the worship of the Lord. Individuals began to divorce their Jewish wives and begin to take for themselves wives of the Gentile nations so that they may prosper and that they may gain uh, prominence within the society. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer, the corruption began to exceed all expectations. The remnant of those faithful were shrinking immensely year by year. And after a hundred years of seeing this progression, 
after the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. They grew indifferent to God. Believing that God was no longer just, that God was no longer uh, loved them, that they were no longer God's chosen people, that he was now favoring the wicked over them. And as they grew indifferent, the sin that they, that occupied their lives, they became blind to. And they saw fault with everything around them except they themselves. And finally, as God now brings a series of indictments against them, and they respond in the manner of which what I would consider a position of ignorance, how have you loved us? How have we despised you? How have we uh, offended you? Where is this God of justice? And now they will ask this evening, this morning I should say, how have we spoken against you? And we pick it up here in verse 13 of our text this morning. And let us read through verse 18. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in his mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we can call the arrogant blessed. The evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. We are wrestling with the age-old question that was posed to us in the very first written book of the Bible, which is Job. There you go. You all get a cookie. Somebody left a great plate of cookies on my desk. You all get one who said Job. If you said Genesis, you owe me a cookie. No. The book of Job. For Job wrestled with this question, why do the evil prosper and the righteous suffer? And from that very point in time until now, it is a question that has plagued the mind of the follower of Christ, the believer in God ever since. And today, people are wrestling with that question. Why should I continue sacrificing for God, serving God, worshiping God, when I see the wicked getting away with what they are getting away with? When I see those who don't believe in God seeming to prosper in this world at this moment and in this time, they look so happy. They look so fulfilled. Why should I continue on following God and sacrificing all of these things on his behalf when it seems to profit me nothing? That is what they wrestled with. In their hundred years growing indifferent towards God, they now came to this conclusion. 
And God says here very clearly in verse 13, you've spoken very hard things against me. It is a word in Hebrew that is used uh, in the same place in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, talking about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart against God. As you remember, Pharaoh was given opportunity to obey time and time again, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart to the point where God finally said, fine, I will now harden your heart. And it was a state of rebellion against God's authority, against God's direction, against God's will. It is this word that is used here for these hard things that the nation of Israel spoke against God. They spoke against him in a severe tone of rebellion towards him. What does it profit us to worship God, to serve God? It just seems to be getting harder rather than things getting better. They say here in verse 13, as the Lord addresses them through Malachi, your words have been hard, which we looked at. Against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Again, their indifference towards God, blinding them to their own personal position before God and the sin of their own heart. Critical of God for his apparent lack of faithfulness, critical towards God for his uh, apparent lack of, of, of provision, of protection, and so forth, yet completely oblivious to their own sin before him. Oh, we've seen this how many times in our, in our time and in our society where people will blame God for everything and yet they are absolutely oblivious of their own sin before God. And their indifference had hardened them to this point. They are now firmly emplaced within it to the point of now rebelling against him to the point in verse 14 that they actually say, you have said as God addresses it, it is vain, it is worthless, it is futile, it is of no avail. What's the point of it? To serve you. The word service there means more than just serving him in some specific capacity. For example, serving him in a ministry capacity. The word serve here in the Hebrew means a place and position of not only serving him, but more importantly, that of worshiping him. They're saying in all due honesty, they're saying, what is the point of worshiping you any longer, God? What is the point Because the wicked continue to seem to be blessed, which we'll see in just a minute. What is the point? For you have said it is vain to serve the Lord. And then he goes on to clarify. As the Lord sees the hearts and the minds of his people and begins to articulate them and bring this um, to the light. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning. Let me tell you what that means. What profit is it? The word profit there in the Hebrew means where's our cut? 
It is a word that is used in the uh, separating of fabric in that society. Where's our cut? Where is our peace? Where does it benefit us to serve you? Now, they're totally negating the fact that God had released them from the captivity of Babylon, that he was faithful to his promise. They're totally negating the fact that he rebuilt the walls through sending of Nehemiah. They're totally negating the fact that Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah all wrote to encourage them to rebuild their temple, and the temple is now complete. They're forgetting all of that in the light of their moment uh, of affliction, their temporary position of being uncomfortable, things are a little difficult, they're starting to whine about it, and you just want to know, do they want a little cheese with that wine? That's really what we're seeing here in our text. What profit is there for keeping your charge, which means obeying you? Or walking in mourning, meaning having a sense of conviction, and when I do something wrong, asking for forgiveness through repentance. What profit is it to us any longer if we continue in these things? It doesn't seem like we're benefiting from this. You know what they were actually saying? And I love Warren Worsby for pulling this out. They were saying, we're not getting anything out of it anymore. It just seems to be getting worse and worse as time goes on. I can't tell you how many people have told me that they no longer attend a church because they're not getting anything out of it. Now, that's true in some cases. I understand that, you know, boy, we we're, we're lacking good biblical churches in America today. I understand that. I understand that some churches have truly gotten side, gone sideways and they're no longer, you know, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the word of God. I get that too. But there are good biblical churches out there that you could be a part of. And yet you refuse to because you say you're not getting anything out of it. First of all, consumer mentality, right? I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not looking to contribute. I'm not looking to do something and to serve. I'm looking to get something out of something. But you know what? Let me ask you a question. A church is a lot like a bank, okay? I dare you tomorrow to go to the bank, walk in, go up to the teller and say, give me some money. I can't. I'm not getting anything out of this bank. I'm going someplace else. Really? Don't you have to put into the bank before you get something out, right? Don't you have to deposit something before you can withdraw something? It's just like home, too. I hate this family. I wish I belonged to some other family. I'm just not getting anything out of it. Well, what are you contributing to it? Except heartache and grief. See, we have this mentality that everyone in this world is here to serve us, right? That's the mentality that we carry so often with us. But as a Christian, Jesus says, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And people are like, yeah, I like that. I want God to serve me. Really? No, he was showing us an example of what he wants from your life. But this is what was happening. Uh, we're no longer getting anything out of it, God. Uh, we, we, we don't see the benefit of it anymore, Lord. 
So why should we be obedient to you? Why should we walk in conviction towards you? Because verse 15, notice this is where they clarify this. So now we call the arrogant blessed. The evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You know what he's saying here? Do you get the gist? Hey, they, they seem like they're doing really well over there. Uh, they, it looks like that they're being blessed, meaning happy. Uh, they, they're, they're prospering, meaning they're doing well financially. They're wealthy. They have material goods and so forth. And they seem to flaunt it in God's face to test him, and yet they escape. It doesn't seem like God really cares what they do, so why should I care any longer what I do? That's their argument before God. And as a result, they had allowed their sin to blind them and to create an insensitivity in their own hearts that not only did they doubt his love, they doubted the value of knowing him, they doubted the value of loving him, they saw no benefit in obeying him, they had given up on God, abandoning him, and going the way of the world. This is what a lot of people are wrestling with today. What's the point? Things just seem to get worse. The wicked seem to prosper. They seem to be blessed. They seem to be happy. They seem to be flaunting it in the, in the face of God and he hasn't reacted. He hasn't brought calamity or judgment upon them. So what is the purpose of me following God any longer? As one wrote, he said, it may have appeared that the wicked were living the high life and not suffering any consequences for their action. But the Lord had plans for the arrogant, the wicked, and the defiant. Therefore, Israel's view was far too short-sighted. God would one day judge the nations for their corruption and their defiance, along with every Israelite who followed their same path of destruction. When we see the wicked prosper, when we see and it appears that the wicked are being blessed, when it seems like they're provoking God by their lifestyle and their actions and so forth, let us not misinterpret what God is doing. His lack of intervention, his lack of judgment is not an indication that he condones the behavior. It's an indication that he's long-suffering and he, and he hopes that all come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But see, God knows what judgment is going to be like. And when it comes, it's going to come in a, in a def, uh, defiant and in a very specific and uh, harsh manner. And when it does come, it's going to shake people to their core. But I hope you're tracking with me because I want to let you know that many young people who have grown up in Christian lives are asking themselves this question today. It doesn't seem to benefit me anymore to walk with God. Why should I struggle through life? I see, you know, uh, my mom and dad struggling, 
you know, and trying to make ends meet when, you know, these people, they don't believe in God and they're so wealthy and they're happy and they've got everything they've ever wanted. And people, they go out and party and they drink and they have fun and they, they, they're fooling around and so forth and nothing ever seems to happen. So why should I miss out on the joys of life to follow God? Trust me, those things that appear to be the joys of life are what God would spare you from. God is not holding you back from fun. He's keeping you from consequences. Sin is pleasurable for a moment. Let's be honest. Sin is pleasurable for a moment and then it brings death. You know, somebody could tell me that this poison tastes like sugar. It is awesome. Just taste it. Wow, this is the best thing ever. You know. Guys, part of the problem is that I think some of you need to borrow my glasses. For I am very short-sighted physically. And some people are so short-sighted that they think today is the only day that matters. I want to live it to its fullest and so forth. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here today can raise your hand and say, I don't know where the last 20 years have gone? I can't. I have no clue. If you ever told me that I was going to be 29 like I am now, I would have said, No way. Unbelievable. You know, I mean, two days ago I brought Autumn home from the hospital, and today she just came home from college. Okay? unbelievable. I don't know where those years went. I'll never get them back. And if you don't feel that decisions you make today have an impact upon your future, you are sorely mistaken, folks. Because all of us here could say to ourselves, and if we were honest with ourselves, we've made a decision or multiple decisions that we ultimately regret today. But the one decision I will never, ever, 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 am I emphatic enough? Ever, ever, ever regret is turning to Christ. Folks, don't sell out what the Lord would have for you for a temporal minute of pleasure. Think of sin like Disney World, okay? It's supposed to be the happiest place in the world, but all I ever do is see kids just melting down there, crying like a storm. But I have to even question my own sanity. For me from the pain, Lord. It's so short-lived, and yet it's so long and anticipated for. Sin is like those rides, those moments of pleasure, but they don't last very long, do they? And then the, con- the consequences flood in. So how does the Lord respond? I thought this was the most interesting thing about this text. They have now basically said, what's the point? The evildoers, they're arrogant, they're blessed, they're happy. The evildoers, they're prospering. They put God to the test and they escape. How does God respond to all of this? Verse 16, very interesting. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. 
The indication here in the Hebrew is that the ones who were walking with the Lord, that's what this term feared of the Lord, they have reverence, respect, they, they were still following God the way he would have them follow him. They spoke with one another, and the word spoke there was words of encouragement. See, there was a remnant amongst all of this um, complaining that still was faithful to God. And in the midst of the voices all yelling and complaining and the the choir that is just singing out to God uh, of the harshness in which he has handled them, notice what he truly turns his ear to, what he truly listens for. Amongst all of this, he finds the remnant, those who were faithful to him. And notice what it says in verse 16. As they spoke with one another, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. He paid attention to those, not the ones that were complaining. And don't you feel like the voices or the number of those complaining truly outweighs the number of those who are thankful today? And as a result, you feel like you get drowned out. But God hears these individuals. And he creates a book of remembrance. And a a professor from Master's Theological Seminary did a phenomenal job uh, on the um, identity of this book of remembrance. Many equate it to be uh, similar to the book of life, but more accurately, I believe that the book of life is a separate book altogether. This is more of a memorandum. It's a, the word used here in the Hebrew is of a royal document that a king would write to himself. Um, if I may use a term that we are all familiar with, uh, it's a post-it note, Okay. Something that he writes something down that he wants to remember himself for the future. And not that God forgets, please, let's not get into that. But he just wants to write down something that he'll remember in the future, that he'll put in a certain place that at the appropriate time he'll call it to attention and remember these things. But it is also used in case, of course, in the uh, culture at that time, that if that king were to die and his son were to succeed him, it's interesting. Then the son would pick up where the father left off. There's interesting theological things there. But he writes this memorandum to himself, remembering those who were faithful amongst all of those who were complaining. And the Lord said, he wrote this book of remembrance To those who fear the Lord and esteemed his name, verse 17, they shall be mine, number one, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, interesting phrase, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, verse 18, notice here, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. There's going to be a reckoning where every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at that moment, you are going to see a, the reality of the works of the righteous and the works of the wicked. The evidence of sin and the evidence of salvation. 
at that reckoning. And so God is saying to you and I to encourage us, don't misunderstand what I'm doing in the world. For I reign on the just and the unjust. But he does so. He's showing people kindness in their rebellion in hopes that they will turn to him for salvation and in repentance. And to you who have grown up in a Christian home, to you who are now being challenged by the world because it is becoming more difficult to walk with the Lord day by day, isn't it? And we're being challenged on an intellectual level. We're being challenged on a theological level. We're being challenged on an ideology level in so many different ways. And when we see the world around us, we may, misunder- we may misinterpret it and forget what God is doing. I'd like to read this to you if I may. There are people all over the world who doubt the value of serving the Lord. At times, even believers fall prey to such doubt, especially when things get tough. Living for the Lord is never easy, he writes. In fact, it requires immense commitment and even sacrifice. Yet, Anyone who has served the Lord for any length of time knows the joy of the living for the Christ is immeasurably greater than any sacrifice he or she can make. Serving the Lord is the challenge to all of us, but it's also our great privilege. The Apostle Paul put it this way, and hopefully it'll shape our perspective this morning. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I want to talk to you just a moment, if I may. I am growing concern for the, for the next generation coming up. As believers, they are going to face challenges that we before them did not chase, uh, face. Next year, we are going to be starting in the month of January, one evening per month that we are going to open up this church building, and I am going to lead this. We are inviting all of the church to come, and we are going to pray for the children of our church. Not only for those who are struggling and have walked away from the Lord, but we're going to pray for those who are walking with the Lord. Because we know that they cannot inherit eternal life through us. We know that they cannot get saved because we are saved. They have to make that decision for themselves. And we're going to pray for them. And anyone who wants to come, I don't care if your children are 40 or 4, we're going to pray for our kids. You know why? Because we love them so much, that's what we're going to do on their behalf. Because the world is trying to cheat them. The world is trying to rob them. The world is trying to destroy them, folks. And from their perspective, I can understand why they would conclude, why should we continue to follow the Lord any longer? 
Today, truth is no longer based upon fact in the minds of the individuals. This is so important for us to understand. This is why so many are struggling in their personal reading of God's Word. For me, I open the Bible and it is the living Word of God. And through the Word of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it has the ability to encourage me, to to, uh, take me to task, to empower me, to show me God, to show me myself. It has incredible value, incredible worth. It's living, it's powerful. It is not some dead liturgy. It is a living literature. And yet to others, especially those younger, I find that they are not experiencing that in the Word of God. And I'm not getting on them for that, but I want to let them know why that's not happening. Many have been trained and conditioned to discover truth not on the basis of fact any longer, but on the premise of feeling. And also it succumbs to what's called pragmatism. If it works, it must be true. And a pragmatic understanding of truth will lead to one thing, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And the pragmatic understanding of truth leads to a short-sightedness because they're more worried about the moment than they are the long view, the long game, the long-term effects. Now, please, I'm not bashing you. I'm not coming down on you. I love you, and I'm trying to help you see that there's more to it. It's part of our society. We've all succumbed to this in one way or another. And now the relationship with people has been uh, elevated over any ideology, philosophy, and lastly and most importantly, any theology. So if for some reason my Christianity uh, keeps me from a relationship with someone that I want to have, then the Christianity goes first before the relationship does. And this is just the world in which we live today. But God says, look long-term, folks. Look past the moment. Think of tomorrow. Consider how the decision you make today will affect you later. Consider yourself, uh, you know, at the moment that you are tempted to sin in some way and ask yourself, how is this sin going to affect me tomorrow? Get past the pragmatism, folks. Because God's word is the ultimate truth in all things. And he is not keeping you from fun. He is not keeping you from quote-unquote happiness. In fact, he says, trade in happiness and I'll give you joy. Because joy is not based upon circumstances. Joy is based upon him. Don't walk about life dependent on your feelings. Feel the forest, Luke. (laughs) You know? But look at it through the factual lens of Scripture. And you'll have a whole different, whole different perspective. Think about that moment you're tempted maybe to enter sexual sin and think about the day that you want to stand before God and commit your life to a man or to a woman that God has led into your life And think about that moment. If they're not your first, how will you feel? 
Think about that moment when the world says, I want you to trade your Christian your convictions for the ever-changing standard of morality of our world. And notice that it is the Judeo-Christian ethics that are being challenged today. Did anyone ever see this coming? That a baker from Colorado is now standing before the Supreme Court and religious freedom hangs in the balance. What a, what a situation. I mean, I love bakers, right? Who doesn't love a good cupcake? But did you ever think that this poor guy making cakes would be thrusted into such position? You can tell where the attack is against. And it's easy to conclude, what is the point of fighting the battle any longer? You know, if I could say one thing to those here that are, let's just say, 25 and under. If the Lord tarries, one day you'll be 45 and under. And you'll have kids. And the battles you choose not to fight today, your kids are going to have to deal with later. The reason I fight the battles that I fight today is for my children. And you fight the battles that you're going to fight for your children. And you have two battles to fight, the Lord's or the world's. That's all there is. And only the Lord can give you the peace that you're looking for. So many today are starving for relationship, just starving for it. And they're willing to sacrifice their Christian values for the pursuit of relationship. But don't you understand that that relationship that you're looking for can only be fulfilled through Christ? That was me, man. I was looking for the ultimate relationship. And then, I, then Jesus found me and I discovered the ultimate relationship. Folks, don't trade your faith for the moments or the whims of this world. Peter was challenged with this, and we'll close with this. For Jesus came to a point in his ministry as he was getting closer to the cross that the disciples were scattering, not the immediate 12, but those who had been following him from place to place, city to city, watching the great miracles occur one right after another. But when it became difficult to follow Jesus, when the religious leaders were now ramping up their persecution against him, when they were belittling, the, that is, the religious leaders were belittling the authority of Christ, it says in John 6, 66 through 69, that at that moment after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned away. And he had these thousands and thousands of people following him. And they chose to get off the narrow way and hop on the broad way. They chose to get off the hard way and jump onto the easy way. The Broadway, though, leading to destruction, the easy way leading to eternal life in God. And when Jesus undoubtedly weeping over the fact that these people left, and it was their choice, God wants you to follow him because you love him and want to follow him. And he'll give you the ability to do so through his spirit. He then turned to his 12 and he said to them, 
He says, and I can't even, I, I would love to hear the tone of his voice. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's nowhere else to go, Lord. You're it. And that's what I say to you this morning. Don't abandon God. Don't walk away from Christ for the things of this world because He is it. He is the one, the only one that will give you the life in which you are so desperately seeking. It may not be a life of comfort. It most likely will be a life of difficulty. He may not give you everything you want, but he'll provide everything you need. Your circumstances will often try to tread you down, to shake you about, to break you, but you won't be broken. For the joy of the Lord will comfort your your heart. And the peace of God will surround your mind. And the love of God will encourage you to go further, one step further. And the relationship with God will ensure that you're never alone again. How can you be alone when you've got the God of all the universe living and dwelling within your heart? You can talk to him and ask him for wisdom. You can call him Abba, Father, without fear. You can come to him at any time of the day or the night and ask him for his insight, for he knows what's going to happen before it happens. I asked for a Corvette. Did I not get a Corvette? God loves us so much and he loves to bless his kids. Sometimes when we don't deserve to be blessed, he still blesses us. And if God says in his word not to do something, he's not keeping you from something that is going to hinder your personal fulfillment and edification. He's keeping you from consequences of sin. And we all know that the consequences of sin can be devastating, can't they? Don't abandon God. They say it is vain to serve the Lord. I say it's the only way to go. And in 2018, I want to make that a banner of our church. As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. I can't control what happens everywhere else. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Joshua said, I love it. He goes, choose this day whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Amen?